Ever wish there was a fast way to get up to speed on a complicated topic? Well, you're in luck. This series might just be for you. As providers, it's hard to stay on top of all the specialties in a multi-specialty world. So join us for the month of October and get back in the loop about everything that's happening in cochlear implants, from the fundamentals to what's changing with candidacy, patient characteristics, and the latest in tech. And you're going to hear it from the best of the best. Hit the subscribe button and be the first to know when an episode drops for this Medod Pro Doc Talk special series podcast on cochlear implants, sponsored by Envoy Medical. Hi, and welcome to Doc Talk by Medod Pro. We are continuing our episodes on cochlear implants, and today we have Dr. Bill Shapiro, who is the co-director of NYU Cochlear Implant Center, joining us along with my fabulous co-host, Camille Dunn. And Bill, thanks for being here. We appreciate it. Why don't you let our audience know who you are and tell us a little bit about how SSD came to be an indication for CI. So I actually got my audiology license back in 1978 couple of years before electricity was was invented. And in 1983, the end of 83, I joined the NYU cochlear implant team. And I was fortunate enough to be the first audiologist to, to program a patient. And we've been going strong ever since. Um, my passion really is seeing how technology has changed over the years. You know, when we first started doing implants, if a patient could hear the difference between a noise and a voice or a female or a male or the number of syllables in a sentence, we would not implant them because we didn't know um, how much benefit we can give a patient. But now, as we um, have seen over the last few decades, technology is getting better. And as a result, we're expanding criteria. Now we're expanding criteria into single-sided deafness. And we know single-sided deafness is an absolute disability in terms of, of communication. Um, so we, when we talk about single-sided deafness, I think we have to divide it into to kids and adults. Our first SSD adult was actually done about 25 years ago, um, way before we began in earnest in doing SSD patients. He was someone who had insurance that would pay for it, which is often an issue. He was about 70 years old and he was short-term deafened and we implanted him and he never really liked the way sound sounded. We would, we would be able to get some open set speech discrimination from that ear, but when he walked around in his activities of daily living, he really didn't like the way it sounded. So we kind of gave it up for maybe a decade or so. And then we began you know, with adults, um, probably about 12 years ago, um, doing SSD patients. We have a bunch of adults. We have some children as well. And the benefits, it, it, depending on the patient's cause of deafness and length of deafness, I think that's a big, um, a very important issue to talk about because if someone's been deafened for 30 or 40 years, single-sided, they're probably not a candidate for a cochlear implant. But a lot of our adults are sudden idiopathic, which means we're not sure what caused it, sudden idiopathic, sensory neural, single-sided deafness. And these adults do really very nicely with, with cochlear implants. Kids are a mixed bag. 
um, often because kids are born with um, maybe a cochlea that's malformed or a nerve that's um, um, deficient. And so there are often reasons for a kid to, to for a child to, to be SSD. But the adults who have these single-sided deafness, if you implant them within six months or, you know, not before six months, but six months or any time after that, they do really very nicely with their with their cochlear implants. Thank you for that summary, Bill. That's really interesting how you guys started this so many years ago. How did that experience halt um, your thought process in 12 years ago when you guys reinitiated this endeavor of single-sided deafness? Yeah, well, I think because of that um, episode, we kind of backed off for a while. But I think as a group, we're always thinking, you know, we should be able to do this with a patient with a short term of deafness, because as we know, length of deafness is probably the most important prognostic indicator for any cochlear implant uh, recipient. And we were seeing all of these adults with, you know, six months of deafness, a year of deafness, and they really were struggling. We know, um, uh, Camille, you know as well that having one ear is just not enough. You know, we know these patients have a lot of trouble in background noise. We know we, these patients have a lot of trouble localizing sound. And they were once binaural listeners and now they're unilateral listeners and they're really struggling. Their quality of life was really affected. And so a lot of it was driven by the patients themselves. Like, what can you do for me? I remember it gets back to even before that, when we were only doing for, for not for single-sided patients, but for patients with a bilateral severe to profound losses, we were only implanting one ear. And I remember the day when I was counseling a, a mom of a child and she said, well, you'll do both ears, won't you? And we, we said, no, actually we just do one. She said, why, why can't he have two? And I said, I don't know, that's a good question. And that was the first time we started doing bilateral implants on kids, you know, simultaneous bilateral. So a lot of this stuff is driven by by the family, I think, or the patient. So yeah. I think that's that's what happened. Yeah. And it's interesting because these patients come into our clinics and, you know, you talked about the differences between a pediatric child with SSD and an, an adult with SSD. Um, a lot of times like you said, the pediatric version is not necessarily driven by the child itself, it's driven by the parent versus an adult patient comes in, it is absolutely driven by them. And they're, they're, they're even so much different than a patient who comes in with bilateral profound hearing loss, severe to profound hearing loss. They're much more desperate. They're much, um, they, they want that hearing restored because it, they lost it so quickly. How do you counsel different between all of these different pockets of patients knowing that they are so different? Right. So actually here at NYU, I do the counseling of patients. In other words, we're a little bit different. I'm kind of the toll booth on the highway to their hearing, so to speak. So they get all of their evaluations. And just before they see the surgeon, they see me. And um, I talk to them, we call it a device consult, but it's not so much about devices. It's about the experience, what their expectations are, what the road ahead looks like. 
But so the interesting is with SSD patients, they may come in for what we call an SSD consult. Now, this is a patient, if they recently lost their hearing, it's a reasonable thing to try other treatments first, right? You want to try less traumatic or invasive treatments first, maybe a cross hearing aid, maybe mm -hmm. a, a, an adhere from Medel, or, or maybe a, a bone anchored hearing aid. There are other options, but as I counsel these patients is if you've got short-term deafness, um, a cochlear implant is going to be the only thing that's going to give you binaural hearing and the ability to hear better in noise and possibly localize things better. So there are patients that come in that have already tried a cross hearing aid mm -hmm. and they've rejected a cross hearing aid and they're ready to talk about a cochlear implant. But then there are those people who haven't tried anything yet. And again, I would steer them to the less invasive treatments first. Um, and then discuss cochlear implants, but tell them cochlear implants is, again, the only thing that's going to be able to restore a certain level of, of hearing in that, in that dead ear. And, I, and again, I say to them, look, you were okay five months ago. You have all the equipment. Your nerve is okay. Mm -hmm. um, your, your, your cochlea has been uh, um, affected, and the cochlear implant, the electrode array is going to bring that back to a certain extent. You're a perfect candidate. And looking back of our cohort of short-term deafened adults, as you know, we can look at um, we can look at how long the, the data logging, how how often they're wearing their device. And these patients are wearing their device all day long. Well, if you're wearing your device all day long, you're probably getting some benefit from it. Yeah, and I and I know I remember when we first brought our patient in um, post-operatively or even pre-operatively, really. Um, trying to understand how to test these patients, it was completely different. We're used to putting these patients in a sound-treated booth, uh, presenting sounds through the, the loudspeaker, um, but these patients are different. You know, now we have to think about how do we isolate the ears. Um, Post-operatively, we still do that, but that's not really a fair, you know, we look at CNCs, we look at AZ bios, and there are oftentimes some patients are very, very good. Some patients are are not so good, but like you just said, they're wearing it all day. Um, and I think partially it's because we're testing them in an artificial, you know, situation. We that patient never ever walks around without their normal hearing ear. That's and so then testing them in their direct connect or whatever we're doing, um, you know, it helps us as an audiologist maybe to see if they're improving or see if there are changes, but it's not really a good measurement. Or would, would you disagree? How do you test your patients to see if they're getting benefit? Well, first off, I, I always agree with you. <laughs> Second is it's true because when you're doing a pre-op evaluation, often you can prove that um, the patient actually needs another ear. Yeah. They may do very well in the pre-op situation because we we don't have we don't have tests to accurately measure their functionality in the world. You're so we specific. may test them and not show that they need an implant, but do an implant anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so we do do you know we do believe I do believe in direct connect post-op um, just to be able to tell us if the map is a good map. You're absolutely right. The cochlear implant ear needs to play nice with the normal ear. And that's functionality in the real world. Um, but I think there is some, some benefit to um, direct connect. Um, some places have enough room where they can do localization testing. 
we do we do speech and noise testing um, in different conditions where the noise may be on the implant side after the um, implant or on the dead side. So we have different configurations of speech and noise. But it, you know, we've got to do a better job. Hopefully, um, we can do a better job um, preoperatively with the use of um, questionnaires. Um, really functional listening tests, because right now we don't have great testing to really show someone. And that's where the data logging comes in. Why would someone wear their device 16 hours a day if they weren't getting any benefit? Right. Camille, it sounds like this is um, a great opportunity for Dr. McCracken to jump in and be like, this is my next research project with his quality of life surveys. Yeah. And, and that is true. I think you know, like Bill, you talked about some of the patient's qualitative changes are probably just as important as any kind of quantitative changes that we try to measure in our laboratory. If the patient's wearing it and they want to wear it, it's helping them. Correct. Right. Yeah. And it may be helping them in ways that you just can't measure, right? There may be other ways that it's yeah, helping them. Really so again, I think um, it, the benefit that adults get are way different than the benefit kids get. So we, you know, we said, wow, look how well these adults are doing. Let's do kids. Mm -hmm. But then we realized kids are a real mixed bag. You know, a kid may have a real malformed cochlea or cochlear nerve deficiency. So then expectations comes into it, right? What do the parents expect or what do we and the parents expect from doing an implant on this child? We do have kids who are getting benefit and we have kids that are not getting as much. Um, so kids and adults, you know, in typical cochlear implant world, there's not that much different than of kids and adults, I think. But in SSD world, there's a world of difference between kids and adults because it's all about the etiology and the length of deafness. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. You know, an adult can tell you the exact day, hour, whatever minute that they lost their hearing where a kid you know, they could have been, they could have been born with it. Um, you know, oftentimes the parent finds out when they're in first, second grade of school, when the teacher says, Hey, there's something that's different here. Uh, and, but they have no idea when that child lost their hearing. That's so right. it is different. And then you, and then bring in, you have an adolescent or a child in, in those, elementary junior high years where they don't want to be different they want to be the same as everybody else so then that brings in a whole nother level of counseling that child to wear their device when maybe they really don't want to right and you know what maybe they don't really need to my point is how many patient people have grown up to have perfectly great lives with one ear mm -hmm. and so there is this question of whether you're pathologizing the child when they don't really need to, you know, they're okay. And that's, a, there's no answer to that question. Um, often by the time you figure out that the child's really having difficulty, they're a little bit older and it may be a little too late. That's just a question and there's, there's no answer to that. So there, you're right, there are a lot of different um, uh, issues to look at. The other issue is um, quite frankly is, when an adult has single-sided deafness, it's also accompanied with, with tinnitus, with ringing in the ear. Often they'll say, look, if you can just reduce the ringing, I would be very happy. My understanding is SSD actually started in earnest in Europe just for tinnitus suppression because there was this, this theory, and, and it's true, that electrical stimulation can often reduce tinnitus. 
So that's another byproduct because often these SSD, idiopathic sensory neural hearing loss patients do have some degree of tinnitus. So you're really killing two birds with one stone with these adults. Another oddball case, Camille. Yes, that is true. Yeah. Uh, you know that, but what are some of the things when you think about these adult patients, counseling them on their expectations, what your expectations are for them post-operatively to make right. sure this device is successful for right. them is again, a different maybe counseling than it is with um, somebody with bilateral hearing loss. What, well, what are some of those things? Yeah. I am, this is, and I'm pretty fervent about this. Apparently our wonderful, talented physicians like to give numbers. Well, you will do 50% better. You'll do 72.5% better. What I say is you will be a significantly more effective communicator with this implant. And then they push. Well, is that 40%? Is that 50%? I said, I don't do numbers. You will be able to um, be a much more effective communicator with this implant. And I would say that for an SSD patient, and I would say that for a regular patient. Isn't that the goal, to have patients be a much more effective communicator? So um, everyone's different, right? No one's the best. No one's the worst. We're uh, measuring you against you, you preoperatively versus you postoperatively. I'm not looking at anyone else. I'm taking all these, these, these boxes, uh, length of deafness, intelligence, surgeon's expertise, audiologist expertise, all these parameters. And I think you should get a lot, a lot of benefit. That would be you know, significant benefit. So I stay away from numbers and I, that's my counseling, that you will be a much more effective communicator um, with an implant. You know, I have a quick question. Thinking about referrals in for single-sided deafness, I can picture the numbers of patients that I fit with a hearing aid on that side. You're trying to do cross, you know, products. And I don't know that I've ever referred out into cochlear implant facility for any of those patients or that it would have crossed my mind. Do you think the last number of years, this is changing from a referral standpoint? significantly from, you know, out of audiology and out of general ENT where they're yeah. like, Hey, we've tried this and the patient is doing better, but are they doing as great as they should be? And we should be thinking CI. Right. So there's no question that the, I think the largest growth in um, a patient um, etiology is single-sided deafness. If we look, we, we have Wednesday morning meetings, which we just finished out of about 90 patients that are on the, in the hopper to get an implant, 19 of them are SSD patients. So that's a huge percentage of our, our population. SSD patients, are, are it's big. It's, it's a very big thing. And now that it's approved by the FDA, insurance companies are a little bit more lenient about saying, okay, there are still insurances that won't approve it. Um, and we've gone through that with patients who get denials and an appeal and a denial and appeal. We've had patients that have been denied four times and then they appeal for the fourth time and they approve it. So I think, you know, that's one of the things we counsel patients about is you have to be um, dogged. You have to really not give up because with insurance companies, maybe 10%, 50% of patients will get denied. And, and they'll walk away. They won't appeal. So insurance companies, I suspect, know this. But so mm -hmm. if you keep 
um, keep at it, I think you have a good chance of, of being approved. Yeah, one of the things, too, that we counsel on at our center is, you know, it's going to sound different. These patients have a normal hearing ear, and you turn it on, and the first thing they're going to think is, this is noise. Uh, and and that's to be expected. We hear that with patients with bilateral hearing loss. But the difference is, I, I feel, is that these patients don't have to use their cochlear implant to understand speech. Whereas somebody with bilateral severe to profound hearing loss, that cochlear implant is quickly going to become their resource for hearing. Um, and so, you know, telling these patients that you have to put your mind into listening with that cochlear implant. You have to force your brain to start taking that sound in and recognizing it and bringing it together with your, with your better hearing ear. I don't expect that patient's cochlear implant to be their better hearing ear, hopefully ever. Um, I remember one time we had a patient come into our clinic and he says, I hear great with my cochlear implant. I just turn it down till I don't hear the noise anymore. And it, and it works wonderful. Well, the thing is, is he was turning it down. So it was not working. It was on his ear, but it wasn't giving him sound. And so counseling these patients too, um, that you have to use that implant and hear the noise to make it turn into to speech that they'll recognize, I think is another important thing for these patients to hear. Right. I would just add that, um, Every patient says, I hear it's going to sound different. I hear it's going to sound like Mickey Mouse or a Martian. So I always say, it better sound different. If it didn't sound different, we wouldn't be doing anything. So yeah, it's going to sound different, but then it becomes the new normal. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. How long do you see that it, I'm sure there's no one answer, but that it takes patients to really adjust to the two different types of signals that they're getting? I don't really have, yeah, I don't have a good answer for that. I think you, you're right. You knew the answer, which is, you know, we're in retail here. This is retail and everyone's a little different. Yeah. So, so you literally can see some patients walk out in a week and, and be wearing it and, and listening that way and having great success and others are working two or three months on that post-op yeah, experience. I think that's fair. I think that, um, that speaks to the need for oral rehab. So that's a critical um, uh, key to any cochlear implant patient, but even more so with these SSD patients. So every one of our adults, whether they're SSD or not, and mm -hmm. children all have in a mandatory um, rehab with their device. So that, we think that's critical. I'm sure that Camille agrees with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Are they doing that at your centers or are they doing that back to at wherever they're from or is it a mix? Well, we're able to do telehealth now, and the audiologists have licenses in a few state states. So a lot of it's telehealth. The adults don't really have therapy at other places, so they usually either come here or do telehealth. The kids have their own therapist, so we may, you know, talk, our therapist may talk to their therapist to formulate a, an effective treatment plan. Um, but for the adults, it's usually here or um, remote via um, maybe a direct connect as well, just yeah, to see and, how they're doing. And, and the nice thing about it too, is that there's a lot of resources online um, for patients to go do listening exercises. And, you know, we really push our patients every day, do 10 
15 minutes every day. And that's going to really help you get used to that sound and turn it into normal speech much quicker. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about the prep ahead of time and, you know, the surgery aspect, kind of getting everybody ready, but we haven't spent a lot of time deep diving in the good work that happens after the technology, you know, after the surgery is done and technology is set. So it's always a good reminder, even with somebody, we go, wow, they have a normal ear. How hard can this be that how important that post-op work really is? Yeah, agreed. Well, Dr. Shapiro, very good to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us. And oh, it's my, my pleasure. Thank look, you. Look forward to seeing you here soon. Um, he hosts a wonderful meeting that's probably one of the most um, sought after meetings for a cochlear implant audiologist, the NYU Maximizing Programming meeting that comes up the first week in in December. So I look forward always to come to New York and get out of Iowa and see different things. So thank you for hosting that and looking forward to seeing you at that meeting. That'll be great. I look forward to seeing you real soon. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this special series of Doc Talk by MedOdPro, sponsored by Envoy Medical.